I learned a, a number of lessons when uh, I was uh, honored to work on this film. Um, you know, I think sometimes we really don't realize when God's using us. And when we got into the film and didn't have enough money, and I went around, of course, I have in my mind exactly what I'm going to do, and I can't understand why when I go to people and ask them for uh, photographs and help that they don't just immediately see what mm -hmm. I'm talking about. And uh, so I had trouble getting good photographs. We didn't have enough money for actual historical footage. It cost um, uh, $600 a second to buy old footage that you see in TV documentaries. We didn't have $600 a second. We didn't have thousands of dollars for that. And uh, so when we did the rough cut of this and, and, I, and I, I saw it, I, I, this is my pride. I was embarrassed. I said, this, is, this just does not look like the quality of the film that I normally do. And I didn't really want to release it. And, um, but then someone reminded me that this wasn't about me. This was about the purpose of this film. <laughs> well, And a few months later, I got a, an email from some guy in South Africa who said they had borrowed a black and white TV set and a video player and had played it, and 200 people sat under the stars in South Africa and cried as they realized what a gift this was. And, and if I had let my pride get in the way, this message wouldn't have been passed. And these videos and DVDs are all over the world now where people see where Alcoholics Anonymous came from. And uh, I remember one moment when we had finished shooting and uh, the, the shoot was over and the rain started and I walked into the house next to Dr. Bob's home and I had been caught up in the details of this and then it was that one moment where you realize God is actually using you and you feel like you're actually there with, you know, the feeling that actually being there with Moses, actually being there with, with uh, the living God. And uh, those moments come few and far and in between. But what I have learned in the program is to continue doing the work, and now and then I get that confirmation that I'm doing what God wants me to do. And I think that this uh, film was one of those, um, one of those areas. Um, when I did this film, the one thing that I would like to correct about its content is the person who got the least credit, who actually, in essence, did more than almost anybody else other than Bill and Bob, was Ann Smith. Ann Smith singularly prayed for, encouraged, and wrote letters on a regular basis to every AA member and every family member who came into Alcoholics Anonymous or the Oxford group from 1935 until her death in 1949. Lois said that she single-handedly did everything that GSO and Al-Anon family groups do today. She did by herself for the first 14 years. And um, had she not opened up her home, she was married to a doctor. And when Bill came in, Bill was not well thought of. Bill was basically a traveling con man. Uh, and, and so when he came in, um, uh, uh, Anne was the one that actually dispossessed, moved her, her daughter and son away and made a, a home. If you've been to Dr. Bob's home, it's a very small home. It's very modest. And there are three bedrooms upstairs. And there were uh, 
Sue, Wendo, Sue who was uh, their adopted daughter, and Smitty, who was their natural-born son, and they were both exactly the same age, and, uh, and then they had a small bedroom. So there were three bedrooms upstairs. And so the kids actually shared a bedroom or went up and slept in the attic or on the roof or whatever if it was nice weather in order to allow these drunks to come in, and Bill stayed there during that time period. And Bill came to Akron, and he was, you know, on a con. He was trying to do a leverage buyout of a company with no money. And, um, uh, and so he, and he got in, and he couldn't pay his hotel bill. And, and, uh, uh, and so that's how they got together. And this, more than anything else, um, when I did this research, impressed me with how much God uses us despite the fact that we look at each other, we find these faults with each other, but God is using us in this room right now, and there's going to be some powerful results as a, work, as a result of just this meeting. But day in, day out, continued work of the steps and the traditions in this program create powerful, powerful results that have uh, effects on people way outside of here and not just inclusive of Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill... His personality's character, the closest person in today's uh, society that he would be like would, would be uh, Bill Clinton. They were both, and you can laugh, take the politics out of it, but he was bo- he, they were both tall. They, they don't look that far uh, apart. They both came from homes where their fathers had left early on, and they were unsettled, and they kind of thought of themselves as white trash, and they were trying to make up for it by associating with, with a better class. And back in, in Bill, Bill Wilson's day, that was doctors. He, he, he dated Bertha Bamford, whose father was a doctor. Lois's father was a doctor. He wanted to be associated with those kind of people. The one person that Bill would have submitted to without really arguing, because he had one of those competitive-type personalities, the one kind of person that he would have identified with was someone from his area of the country, and he was from Vermont, and Dr. Bob was from Vermont. Somebody who was a little bit his senior, who, had, who did not have a type A personality, who was easygoing, who took everything in stride, that was Dr. Bob. And somebody who was a doctor, and that was Dr. Bob. And somehow the two of them entered the same gatehouse in Akron, Ohio, where Dr. Bob, for a few years, had been trying in the Oxford group to get sober, and there was only one group in, in Akron that knew about that, and Bill had been trying the same thing in New York, and they were brought together. That's more than coincidence. The other thing in doing the research, the more you find out about these people, and the more you find out about how human they were, how faulty they were. Um, you know, Bill would have, at every angle, Bill was trying to sell something, trying to make more money off the program. He was trying to franchise this. He thought he had a good thing. Bill would have destroyed it. Dr. Bob worked single-handedly with 5,000 drunks. Last year at the General Service Conference, I'm delegate for Georgia right now, and last year at the General Service Conference, some of the most profound things you hear up there are from people who are not alcoholic. We have seven non-alcoholic class trustees. And, and one of them uh, uh, who was leaving um, shared, he said he had put in a search on the Internet for the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And two things had come up first. Bill's writings and Dr. Bob's life. Dr. Bob lived what Bill wrote about. Dr. Bob was quiet, humble, had a sense of humor, but day in, day out, worked one-on-one with the alcoholic. There's a place for Dr. Bob, but there's also a place for the Bills, and there's also a place for the people that 
may not be as steady and may have lots of their whole entire life in Alcoholics Anonymous, may be up and down and not quite as, as you know, I think in my, my dad is more like Dr. Bob, but I'm more like Bill. <laughs> Emotionally, I'm more like Bill. I fluctuate, I go back and forth, but I have the ability to communicate. But my dad is quiet, works, does his job. And it takes all of us in Alcoholics Anonymous. Above and beyond that, the biggest lesson I learned from this is that God was in control and in charge and took care of all the details in such a way that you cannot doubt it. If there is any question about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, read about how it was written. When the big book was written, the most time anybody had in the program was three years. If you've got a week, three years is an old-timer. If you've got two years, three years may be your sponsor. But if you've got 20 years, you don't allow somebody with three years unattended on your property. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody... Nobody had more than three years. And Bill was all over the place. He had all this energy. He had all this. He wanted to communicate. He was out there. Bill was, he, he was always going. He, was, he had something to say. He wasn't sure what it was, but he had something to say, and that's the way he went. Brilliant mind. And if it hadn't been for Bill communicating this, we would not be sitting here today. If it hadn't been for Dr. Bob living it, and basically being the spiritual father and, and, and helping to keep Bill in line. But they weren't the only two. We had a, a number of people who, people who were uh, uh, in the psychiatric professions, people who were in clergy, uh, priests, pastors, people who had studied this for a long time and with all their heart were looking for an answer who made contributions to the early uh, part of AA and especially to the big book. Um, and God brought all those people together. Of the first few people that came into Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Dodson, the third one, was quite a writer, and he was an attorney. But he knew how to, this was logical, he knew how to help. Each person, as they were added to the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, had something, had some, some kind of talent that can contribute to this big book. So, for those who don't know, the big book... Uh, was called the big book because the original big book is bigger than the one we read now. It's a great big red book. I have a copy. It was given to me by my sponsor, and it was given to him by his sponsor. Um, And it was given to me free. I can't sell it. I can pass it along. And, And I have a copy of it. But it's called the big book because Bill thought, Bill had a whole marketing program because he thought if they sold a lot of these books, it would help the fellowship. And, and the bigger the book looked, the easier it would be to sell for the, the 450, which is what they were charging right off the bat. And so um, uh, they called it the big book, and that's where it gets its name. One of the early things when we went back and, and, uh, um, and looked at and doing the research, and, and in this research, um, we picked everybody's brains we could. I spent plenty of time with Smitty. I spent plenty of time with Sue Windows. Um, I met and talked with Lois on several occasions. Uh, and we never, you know, you never know when somebody's going to pass. I heard Marty Mann speak in 1980 at New Orleans, and she died within a month of speaking in New Orleans. Um, uh, Bill was already passed when I came into the fellowship, and Dr. Bob died in 1950. 
Um, uh, but we talked with as many of the people who were there. And, and we talk about problems with our meetings. We talk about single as a purpose. We talk about all the things that take place in the fellowship now. now we had a woman named Esther uh, who got sober in Cleveland who ha- now has 62 years um, and one of the oldest members of the program living today. But, but uh, um, And Esther came to our uh, general service, our state assembly in uh, Georgia four years ago or five years ago and shared. And people would get up. We had her at the archives uh, committee meeting afterwards, and, and people would ask the same question. said, how did you keep meetings on singleness a purpose? And she said, she gave the same answer three times, and they didn't understand what she was saying. She said, well, when we shared, we just shared, like it says in the big book, we told what we were like, what happened, and what we're like now, and we kept it to our time and then sat down. And they weren't understanding what she was saying, but they didn't have open discussion meetings then where somebody would say, Anybody got a, a burning desire or a, a problem? And then somebody would start on that. They didn't do that. If you shared in a meeting, you shared what happened, what you, what you were like, what happened, and what you're like now. Even if it was only three minutes or two minutes, you shared. You were sharing your progress and how you were growing because that is how we help each other. And that's the way the program was determined from the very beginning. Sponsorship which was not mentioned in the big book, but was mentioned in the 12 and 12, which was written primarily by Bill, and he used a lot of people around him to make sure that he was on target, but Bill was the primary author. Bill was, Bill was the organizer of the big book, but there were a great many people that made contributions to the big book. He was, he was the organizer, and you can see his touch in a lot of it, but, but really there were a lot more people involved in the big book. But he was the primary um, uh, author uh, of the, the uh, 12 and 12. And the 12 and 12 is a supplement to the big book. It mentions it as such. It is a bit, but it shares all the experience that we gained in that 13-year uh, period after the big book was written. They didn't have all that experience when the big book was written. So the 12 and 12 is, if you read both of them together, the 12 and 12 is a great way to find out what they learned during that time period. And they had a little bit more sobriety, and they could see more about how some of these steps works and how, how the progress was made. Um, some of you know about the Washingtonians, and we'll talk about the 12 traditions tomorrow. But the 12 traditions were introduced in 1950 at this first conference. You saw a picture of it up here. Um, they were introduced to keep us together as a fellowship, but unwittingly, when I go over this tomorrow, um, they also gave us a framework for learning how to uh, exercise humility in all our relationships so that we can have good marriages, good relationships at work, uh, good relationships, and they keep us together as a fellowship, and they keep us together perpetually so that this will always be here. Um, but those traditions came about as a result of study and what we learned from the past with the Washingtonians. The Washingtonians, for those who don't know, was, a, was the largest, most prolific, fastest-growing recovery group of all time. It started with six drunks in a uh, tavern in Baltimore in 1840, who were probably gathering together like we do, talking about not being able to find their uh, horse the next day. And so... <laughs> And, they, and these guys found that if they worked one with the other and they, and, and they took these 
They had, their, they had their own version of the steps, but if they worked one with another, they would get sober. And so they started this process, and they grew to, uh, uh, they had 500,000 people within about uh, 15 years. That would be like having 5 million people now, and we only have 3 million. This film says 2 million, but we estimate 3 million AA members worldwide now. We've had big inroads in recent years in China and uh, Russia and a number of countries where AA was not before. And China is a big, big, booming place for us right now. Um, but, but these guys grew quickly to 500,000 people. But they thought, if this works for us this way, why not solve everything? And it would be the same thing as going to an AA meeting and wanting to talk about all your legal problems and all your drug problems and all your family problems and, and politics and everything else, what happens is you get off the purpose, the singleness of purpose, I'm here to recover from alcoholism. And if I stay sober, I as an individual can do a lot about a lot of things. But I am here to focus on my root cause, my problem, and that is that if I take a drink, I give up my right, my privilege, my power, I'm out of it. And, uh, and they forgot that. And, and they also forgot that in unity we put us before me. And some of them became stars and celebs. And some of them became spokesmen for the Washingtonians. And within 25 years they were dead. A group that grew to 500,000 died. So we learned from history and they learned when they did the, the 12 traditions. Each one of us here today is a guardian for Alcoholics Anonymous, for this message and so it's important to know those traditions. It's important to know they're not just about how you run your home group. They're about how we run our lives. And we'll cover more of that tomorrow. A lot of what is different today, and I think there's more of a challenge. I think if you are new in Alcoholics Anonymous today, you've got a great, a much tougher job of getting sober, staying sober, and, and being around here for a long time than, than when I came in. And here's why. I did not get a lot of information that wasn't pure program when I came in, number one. Number two, the guys that I was following were following the original concepts of Alcoholics Anonymous. Number three, our society at the time that I came in was very different than it is now. Whether we did it really or didn't do it, it was politically correct to be a good, honorable, ethical person with only one wife, with, uh, with all, and living the way th that you used to see in the old TV shows. Mm -hmm. And everything that I got was about that. Now, I'm not saying people did that. I'm saying that was what we aspired to do. Today, we live in a very much different culture, and that culture out there makes its way into Alcoholics Anonymous. And we have a lot of division within Alcoholics Anonymous. When we go to the General Service Conference, you'll see groups that want to do with, away with prayer, we have conversations that want to do away with prayer at NEAA things. They want to close the meetings with uh, the responsibility statement. Well, the responsibility statement is a fine statement. But if you don't invite God to your meetings, I would not expect the power of God to be present in your lives or in your meetings or anyplace else. And I actually... I, I did, we had the Southeast Regional Forum in Louisville, Kentucky in December, and I actually led a workshop up there, and it was about carrying the message, and I broke it down into two or three things, and I said, uh, one of them was, how diluted is the message by the time it gets carried? 
and I had several people come up to me who were absolutely angry that said, uh, the main thing we need to do with alcoholics is give them a place where they can open up and they can talk. And I said, <laughs> and these were people with a, little, with a few years, and I said, <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, but the big book says uh, that, you know, the new man clamors for this or that, wife or no wife, job or no job. We simply do not get sober as long as we place dependence upon people ahead of dependence upon God, and that we must trust God and clean house, that we must instill this, burn this idea into the consciousness of the new man. And this person said, oh, you're a big book thumper. And I said, I, and I really am, I don't go around hitting people over the head with it, but if you take away the premise that we turn our life over to God, and that we walk in, 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 in the path that God wants us to do, and that we start living a different life, if you take that away from this program, I don't think there is a program. I think that is the heart of the program. And that, And the reason I mention this is because outside, in culture, in general, right now, we're about 50-50 split on which way to go on this whole God thing. And so we can't really, in my opinion, depend upon what is out there for the morals and, the, and, for, the, and for the ideals and for, uh, you know, it, in the big book it talks about even our sex area, which is an area we speak about the absolute least, honestly. And the first time I ever heard anybody speak honestly about uh, sex was at a retreat at Gethsemane where men were sharing their honest, real uh, life and, and problems they had within their marriage or problems they had with lust and so forth. And it says we ask God for an ideal. Now, I'm not supposed to tell you what to do. You're not supposed to tell me what to do. But I ask God to help me shape my ideals in the area of my sex life. And, and, and that ideal has to be, come from someplace it's not just some new thing that we create. These things have been around for a long time. There are books that you can go to to get uh, guidance. There are books that, that I have studied. I read books that are non-conference approved, um, and I read one this morning because I read it each morning. And, and it helps me to know how, how I'm supposed to live. That's the other thing that was very, very big with the old-timers. You saw up here the origins in the Oxford group, and there were four qualities that were sought, the, called the four absolutes. They were honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. And that, more than anything, was what you could see in Dr. Bob's life. He was as honest as the day was, uh, he was, he was, he absolutely unselfish in that he gave up a practice as a physician where he could have lived a better material life, and he started working as hard as he could, and he treated single-handedly treated medically and spiritually, 5,000 people. And so this was the way he lived. Bill had more trouble with that, but Bill had this tremendous gift to take what Bob was doing and communicate that to the rest of us. I mean, I believe that the stuff that he wrote was just genius. But I also believe it was inspired. But the old-timers set an example, and they set an absolute example, and we set an example for people as they come into Alcoholics Anonymous. They set an example in the way they dress. The reason that I wore a coat last night, even though this is so casual, Keith and I talked about wearing ties and thought that was too much. All we really wanted to do is there's not a specific rule. We wanted to show respect for this podium when we got up and shared what God had done in our lives. So I wore a coat last night. Keith would wear a coat tonight. And, and that was the reason. And I was taught by the old-timers that that's what we do. And they were taught by, and I'm 
the old timers when I came in were the guys that got sober in 1943, 1948. My sponsor got sober in 1961. Uh, but all the old timers were sitting there in a kind of a little corner watching us. And, and the second thing was language. We came into meetings, and I had two tours in Vietnam. I know how to curse, uh, and, and, I, and I grew up around it. We were told at meetings or around AA or around any place that in order to be an example, that we didn't use bad language. And I didn't have somebody hit me. Nobody ever said, shut up, stupid. Nobody ever hit me over the head with anything. You just watched them, and they didn't do it. Their behavior... Back then, if somebody was 13th stepping somebody, the old-timers took them aside, and they would separate them, and they would call them out. I don't mean call them out and embarrass in front of people. They would, take, they would take care of it, that we didn't prey upon God's daughters uh, in meetings and go after them to satisfy our own lust. It's just something we weren't doing. Now, I have had a problem with lust all my life. And I don't know that it'll ever go away. I still look at women sometimes and, and, and sexualize them. But the old-timers taught that, that we set an example in our behavior. And so I never saw any of that. I never saw any of it at meetings. I never saw any of it. And that gave me something to... The, the other thing was credit to God. I never heard any of the old guys speak that they didn't give God credit for what had happened to them. In the big book now, in the fourth edition, only half the stories give credit to God. In the first edition, all gave credit to God. When I've brought this up, or we've had discussions, even within my own area, uh, I'll hear somebody say, well, that reflects the, the, the membership of Alcoholics Anonymous today. This is my opinion only, but my opinion is that we follow a God-given program and that we don't necessarily follow culture, because if we do, we're going to be in trouble, because the ideals that culture follows today are different and not as principled as those that we must aspire to in Alcoholics Anonymous. As culture changes, in my opinion, it's good to go back to our roots. And if every time I see this film, and I did the film, I know every little detail, I know all the stuff that was left out, I know everything else... I cry every time I see the film only because I remember, it reminds me of exactly how much power there is in this program and what God gave us. But if we dilute the power, then we start to lose that power. And that's, that was the biggest lesson that we learned from the old-timers. And they lived their lives that way. And they may have had all kinds of... They were characters. Uh, the name Alcoholics Anonymous came from a wet brain drunk at his last meeting at an Oxford group and he was there sitting there, and they used to call themselves those nameless drunks. And uh, he, he was sitting there, nameless drunks, anonymous alcoholics, anonymous alcoholics, anonymous, he just kept mumbling, anonymous alcoholics. And he said it so many times that it ended up Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the last meeting he went to, but they remembered what he said. He goes off to the happy house, and, and they never see him again. And, and they grabbed that name and named the book when they were trying to figure a name for the book, which was written before they had a name for it. They said, well, how about Alcoholics Anonymous? So they named it Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was supposed to be Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of the first hundred men and women. That was the main thing, is that they had these stories in there, and then the, the, it, it showed how the program worked up to it. Now, after that book was published, there were a group of people up in Cleveland who were Catholic who couldn't become members of the Oxford group because the Oxford group, according to the church, was Keith's, 
Keith knows more about this stuff, but the but the but the somehow you could not be a Catholic and belong to the Oxford group without being excommunicated. Yeah. And so a guy named Clarence Snyder that he mentioned last night decided they would start this group up there and they wouldn't call it the Oxford group, they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. So the people in Akron said, absolutely not, you can't do that because if you call it Alcoholics Anonymous, it will have a stigma, people will say alcoholics, they won't come to it, it'll destroy our whole fellowship. They went up there and had a shoving match, almost had a fist fight over whether or not they could call their group Alcoholics Anonymous. So the first actual group, technically, of Alcoholics Anonymous was Clarence Snyder's group up, up in the Cleveland. So later, and Clancy tells me this story, later Clarence is out on a tour out in, in California in the 50s, and the headline says, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous comes to town. And it was Clarence Snyder. And <laughs> so these guys all had egos. They were all characters, everything else. But, they, but in the end, they submitted to the collective group conscience, even Bill Wilson, when he went out to California, went out there, went through depression because nobody recognized him and he wasn't built up as the guru, as the founder. But he found, his, he, he found more peace after that because he went back and worked through the house cleaning and, and, and worked through the steps and did the same thing all the rest of us do. But God used each one of these people to bring this fellowship together. This is a tremendous gift with tremendous power. But if you dilute it, if you become new, if you become modernized, if you try to change the message just because we have new ways to get the message out there, we're using the Internet now. You can go online and you can see the grapevine, uh, which is uh, our, our, our meeting in print. Uh, you can see the grapevine online. You can go in and if for an extra five bucks a year, you can use the AA, the grape, AA, it's a, aagrapevine.org. And you can go online and you can see uh, any and every cartoon, article, anything you want. You can put subject in there and it'll bring up all the archives so you can see what people have been talking about in terms of, of, uh, the, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it chronicles our history because there were people concerned about us getting away from uh, spirituality uh, in the 1950s. And there are writings on it. So you can see where we, we are each year. You can go in there. And, and have access to it now. We have a big archives in New York, and you can have access to certain parts of it. Um, not everything is, is accessible, um, but we've studied it. Things are going back so that we've got a good historical perspective on all this. But what we learned most from the past is that God was in charge, and if we, if we live that way now and follow these precepts that are in the big book, that we will always be okay and we'll always have the power to carry this forth. If we try to intellectualize it and take it someplace else, it becomes diluted. That's what happened with the Washingtonians. They got away from singleness of purpose. They, they took credit for things that, that uh, God had done, and they died within a short time period. What I want to do now is, is uh, uh, open up to one questions or two um, uh, uh, comments on what you've learned from the old-timers. And if you will, uh, just come to this mic here so that uh, we can get it on tape. Um, <clears throat> I'm Gary. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Gary. Um, you said something a while ago that uh, um, I hadn't thought of before. Uh, you know, I, I may have thought of it, but not put it in those terms. Is uh, that anonymity is we let we let God take the credit and not us. Uh, what do you? What about the spiritual part of the anonymity? Like us? Well, I, I don't get where the spiritual part comes in. If, if, am I supposed to say my full name 
at an AA meeting. Like that's one aspect of anonymity. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the more more? Well, when when the tradition, I'll talk about the traditions uh, tomorrow morning. But when the traditions in the beginning, um, there was more of a stigma about being an alcoholic. So nobody was going to go outside of this fellowship and tell anybody they were alcoholic much anyway. Uh, but in the very beginning in the Oxford group, there are pictures of Bill Wilson with his full name and some of the other members uh, on a Nash in, in newspapers and other places where they started becoming spokesmen for Alcoholics Anonymous before they realized that this was a problem. You cannot be the chairman of the board of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have 21 trustees that make all the decisions for our business. You cannot be the chairman of the board and be an alcoholic. You have to be a non-alcoholic to be the chairman of the board. The reason for that is several of the original board chairmen got drunk. Now, that's about to change because there are a lot of people that stay sober for a long time, and we think that maybe that's outdated. But back then it wasn't outdated because you could get drunk. So if you become the spokesman and you get drunk, it shows everybody that AA doesn't work. That's just common sense. But the other underlying reason for this was and you, you, can, you know there's, there are ministries out there where you'll see the pastor and he becomes the hero and it's the so-and-so ministries. And then we find out that he was going off with a prostitute someplace and that maybe that's, he's not walking the walk like he talks the talk and all that kind of stuff. The credit doesn't go to the leaders. The credit goes to God because that is where we gain our power. So the underlying principle for, for anonymity is always that God gets the credit. He gets it in here, he gets it out there. So people know about AA, and they know about coming to AA. And, in the, and for years, people were not shy about telling people when they talked about AA, even as outside speaker meetings, that in fact, we turn our lives over to God. We've gotten somehow sensitive about that now, but people need to know that. I even mention it when I speak at DUI schools, because I don't want people to confuse this as a self-help program. It's not a self-help program. It's, it's a turn-your-life-over-to-God program. And, and that principle, the anonymity, is really so that we don't take credit for any of that. Now, within the fellowship, if you don't give me your name and I'm trying to stay sober, how am I going to get in touch with you? If I go someplace to look you up in another town and I don't know your name or number, how am I going to get in touch with you? But... When AA first started, they didn't have busloads of people coming in from uh, treatment centers who didn't want to be here. Now, some of the guys that are here today want to be here, but, but we have meetings where people come in. Me, personally, I wouldn't share any inside deep secrets. And I, well, First of all, I don't go to open discussion meetings. I go to big books and 12 and 12 and speaker meetings. But I wouldn't go to a, when I'm on the road and I was at a, uh, an open discussion meeting, I wouldn't share deep inner secrets with somebody that I was afraid because I don't trust the people in that room because I don't know who's a member and who's a guest. And, and the people that just come who aren't, who aren't committed, who haven't taken a third step, are guests until they take their third step, in my opinion. So for that reason, I'm anonymous at the meeting level until I know somebody is a member. If you're a member, you can have my cell phone, you can have what room I'm staying in, you can know where I'm going to be because I need to be accessible to you or else I'm no use to you. And so... You know, most of this is common sense, but the anonymity traditions, the principles, are basically so that God gets the credit and we don't take the credit. We, we shouldn't, some people know more people than others, okay? More people in this room know, are going to know Scott than they might know some guy that's been here for three months, okay? And, and that just happens because people who do work get, get known a lot, okay? A lot of people know Keith because he's done a lot of work. 
But Keith is not the power, and Scott is not the power. They, they talk about the power. And, 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 and that is where the credit goes, you know. Um, I, I may thank Scott personally because I understand he had something to do with the idea of originally sending flowers to wives, and I go, went and thanked him. But I thanked God last night for being here at this fellowship, and I, I asked his guidance this morning. I didn't ask Scott or Keith for their guidance. And, so, and I'm not saying they don't have wisdom. I'm not... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but that that and that that's that spirit of anonymity was something that that the, the that was genius in my opinion because the early members of this program realized that they did not uh, that that in many many areas where you'd have leaders outside who were quote great men those men became the the the. The idol, they were the, pe- the thing that people followed. And here we wanted to avoid that at all costs, especially in light of the fact that every one of us suffers from self-centeredness and big ego. And so given that, to allow one of us to have the spotlight is not a good thing. Thank you very much. Thanks. Steve Lepley, alcoholic. Hey, Steve. I'm in room 104 if you're here. Uh, if, you're li- <laughs> if you're listening to this on tape, uh, I may still be there. Kind of like it here. <laughs> you asked the question, um, uh, what what have we learned from the old timers? Um, and I loved what you shared about uh, um, the old timers cornering the new guys and asking them questions and saying, you know, "Are you ready? Are you done?" And uh, and taking them in a third step and starting immediately on that personal house cleaning. Something that was told to me when I first got involved was um, it was by an old timer. And he said, uh, he said, I've never seen anybody work these steps too quickly, but I've seen a lot of people work them too slow and mess around and get drunk again. And that's something that I learned, and, I, and it's always stuck with me. And I went. Thanks, Steve. My name is Aaron Brown. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Aaron. Um, I like the question about the old-timers. And uh, when I got sober, I got sober in California. And um, when I was newly sober, there was a lot, a lot of sobriety around me. And there was a gentleman... Uh, he's dead now, but his, um, his legacy kind of roams. His name was Phil Stone. And Phil Stone died of cancer one month. Shall have been 40 years sober in this program. And uh, at new, I guess about the first six months, I watched Phil. And he was a great example of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and what I saw and what got me to, to gravitate toward the old timers is, you know, time's a wonderful thing in the program. But I guess when you can live this thing and go through your life for the way you do and use this program and the steps to change you the way these old timers have, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. Um, I was in a meeting once with him, and uh, I thought I knew a lot about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I didn't. And there was a topic, and uh, it was a weird topic. They were talking about um, things that are mentioned in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous other than alcohol. And it talks about um, medication, and it talks about some other things. But this one person brought up a topic, and he was talking about, it says pot in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I got to thinking about that, and I didn't know what that was, but one person did, and he verified it. And that's where you showed it on the tape. It's that headstone. And it talks about the, the diet of bye-bye musket or why pot. And uh, this one person's opinion was that there was a soldier that he, you know, drank too much and he smoked too much pot. And, you know, the, 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 crowd, went, the crowd went, yay, with that, yay, yay. Yeah. But, but Phil was there. And Phil said, he said, basically, he says, by musket, and that's a gun, and by pot, it means by basically the thing that they ate out of. 
You know, but he could be, maybe in war sometimes they run out of bullets in the gun, you know, they fought with the pots. You know, that's why they, they would kill each other. And I thought that was very interesting because what, what, the, what I saw was how they could get the meeting back on track. And it was the experience that they found in the program and using the, the literature that they got the meeting back. So I'm grateful for the, not only Phil, but a lot of other guys, even you two guys, how you share your experience with and hope with us about how the program is in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you that one of the reasons that I'm still here and one of the reasons that, that I believe that I've been blessed with the kind of path that I've had in Alcoholics Anonymous is because of the people that I've had as sponsors. And um, the men that, that I have followed are not men who, some, some, you know, some are very good communicators, but they are very good livers. When I had my 25th uh, A birthday, I had uh, Bill Roop and John Holmes, the two men that have sponsored me since I've been in the Atlanta area, uh, speak at my birthday. And, uh, and Bill got up and talked about when he was 17 years sober. Um, he was trying to figure out how to get rid of his wife uh, so that he could have an affair with another woman. We all knew that, but, but he thought nobody else knew it. And, and so uh, people know what you're doing. And so... Um, uh, but he said, but he said, and there he was with 46 years at that point, and he said, but, but now um, uh, I'm honored to be with that woman that, who's been my wife for, uh, I think it was 55 years or 60 years, 60 years they'd been married, and to be able to change her diaper, because she was sitting on the front row with Alzheimer's, and he has to take care of her and change her diaper. And he honestly, this is the kind of man he is now, Bill's 84, he takes care of his wife day in, day out, changing her diapers. She's gotten to the point where she's, you know, needs a lot of care. And he, he considers that an honor to take care of her. And he reminds everybody that she's got a month more sobriety than he does. And, and secondly, when he has extra time besides the meetings that he goes to and besides taking a meeting into a prison, um, what he does is he goes to nursing homes and visits old people. And he's 84. He was a wheeler dealer. And it took him a while, and he kept growing. But that's what changed in him between the time he was 17 years sober and he was 46 years sober. What the old-timers taught me was you don't get sober, and that's it. Every year, I do an annual house cleaning. I started at Gethsemane, and every year we do an annual house cleaning. And I did one with my sponsor, John, this last year. He told me I was fat. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us. And if I'm fat and huffing and puffing, that prevents me just as much as being in debt, so I'm always working to pay my bills. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But these are things that I have a responsibility to take care of if I'm going to fit myself. So I've lost 40 pounds in the last eight months. Uh, although I did point out there was probably a more delicate way my sponsor could have approached that. <laughs> Hi, my name is Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Carl. First of all, I want to say thanks for that beautiful film. It was a real gift, and I was glad to see it today. You're welcome. Uh, one of the things I learned from the old-timers in my circle is that if I don't keep coming back and sharing the undiluted message, this program won't be here for my children and my children's children, and that's my responsibility to today. Um, the question that I had is um, I've read a lot about the fellow travelers, guys like uh, Father Dowling, who were used in the early days to spread the message. They'd go out and either help establish meetings or carry information from Akron out to where these meetings had developed over the years. And then there's this 
sort of period where I, I haven't seen any information, and then Bill gets very uh, specific about closed meetings and being only um, available to alcoholics who have a desire to stop drinking. And I wondered what, how those people uh, came into existence and out of existence uh, as sort of a fundamental group of people that helped form the fellowship in the early years. Well, I, okay, actually they're still around, and, and, but now we call it general service. In the beginning, AA more loosely because we had all kinds of people who would participate in carrying the message. And, and one thing that was used a lot in the early days were traveling salespeople, really. Traveling salespeople helped start meetings in Youngstown and uh, in Detroit and in North Carolina. Alcoholics Anonymous began in Georgia because a man moved down. He was stationed at Fort Benning. Anybody that was mobile, we're very mobile today, but we weren't nearly as mobile back then. The Alcoholics Anonymous in Georgia started because there was an officer who came down to, to not Fort Benning, uh, Fort Mac, Fort McPherson in Atlanta. And the first meeting that took place in Georgia was in his officer's quarters on a couple of boxes where he'd moved some stuff in, and he found one other member, and they started uh, AA in Georgia. It was traveling salesmen, that kind of thing. Now, we don't in the United States now, if anything, I think it's, it's not that we need to uh, be more present as far as going out and, and bringing the message. People know what AA is. We need to work more on, on finding what the message is and carrying the message within Alcoholics Anonymous because we're confusing so many people that we're, our membership's not growing. They're not staying sober because they think they can just come, not drink, go to meetings and whine, and, and then they end up going back out. And so we are not growing as a fellowship in the United States right now. We don't need more people to know the term AA, which was brand new back then when they were using that. We need more people to actually carry the message. Now... Having said that, there are areas of the world that need, are in the same condition as, as, as uh, America was in 1935 and 1940. And here's what we do for them. At the General Service Conference last year, we talked about, I think, 11 countries where we are going into those countries. We are sending people from the United States and from other countries that speak their language. We are helping them by actually giving a loan, helping them set up a general service office for their country, giving them a loan from our money that, you know, the money you send in, we have to, I will be at the general service conference starting next Friday, and for a week we will sit and make decisions regarding the business worldwide of AA. And, and we are making loans in terms of five, ten-year loans so that they can publish their Materials. They can publish the big book in their language. They can stuff, then they can start selling that through their own office, become self supporting and pay us back the loan which goes back into the funds we have here so that's if you want to call the early missionary days work the missionary days work now are done but we do it through our general service office and that way in the past in the very beginning one of the criticisms was you got people that came in and they weren't necessarily AA members and then treatment centers started and people started selling their treatment centers to people and people started making money off the program and so by moving it into general service we have more control over that process so the process still exists we still have people that are going out trying to help start AA meetings and get AA started in areas where it is not, where people haven't heard of. We just do it through a different process, and it happens out of New York, and then we'll go to one of the general service offices of United Kingdom or someplace else and get their help. But we're, we are in China. We're in, we, this set, movie said we were in 147 countries. We're now in 172. 
So we keep growing all the time. But it's done through our general service office. And we have people that are sent out that, that go and do that work. We make them loans. We help them with their literature. We help them start meetings. We talk to their governments. We send doctors and people who have qualified, our Class A trustees, over there to talk to them. Uh, when we went into Russia, I remember this process. We went into Russia, and Russia didn't want us in there because the state was sovereign. I mean, a lot of people, not, when I say Russia, United, USSR, United United. So, thank you. <laughs> and uh, all I remember is that I'm trying to come up with, and I remember Bruce Springsteen seen back in the USSR. But anyway, so, um, so, uh, but when we went in there, they didn't want a place, a, a group of people meeting and talking about things without a government government person in there to make sure that what they were talking about wasn't, you know, against the state. And we said, there's no way it'll work that way. God's sovereign in an AA meeting. I mean, that's really what we had to say. But they had such a problem, they allowed that to begin. And that was during a time when the whole area became a spiritual, there was a spiritual resurgence over there, and before long, the USSR didn't exist anymore. Now it's Russia and, and uh, all of the different countries. Uh, but we took that and helped them over there, and we sent a lot of people over there to help to get that done. So we do that kind of work, but we do it through a different system now, and, it's, and, it, and we have a little bit more focus on it so that we know that it's, it's all with one voice. Yeah. Uh, my name's Martin Burns. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Mark. And uh, I got confused about this open meeting concept but, or open discussion meeting. Uh, I always thought that open was an adjective describing meeting, not discussion. I mean, I always thought an open meeting, if you look in the directories, I, I'm a traveling salesman and I've been to AA meetings all over the country. It's great. So you get these directories and you look, and closed discussion means only alcoholics can come, and open discussion means anybody can come, but we're talking about AA. Am I wrong? or No, you're right. Okay. I was just wrong the way I described it. By, by, by our definitions now, an open meeting is a meeting that anybody can attend, uh, whether they're an alcoholic or not. A closed meeting is something that only members can attend. That is not what I was talking about. What I meant was a wide-open discussion where you just open it up and anybody talks about everything. Those kind of meetings didn't exist, rap sessions. Those kind of meetings didn't exist uh, uh, back then. So I, I just said the wrong thing. What I meant was they didn't have, um, and in fact, in the early days, you kind of had to know somebody to get to the meeting because they yeah. did protect things. So they were more, in our definition, closed meetings. Mm -hmm. But what I meant was they didn't have just wide-open uh, meetings where everybody just talked about anything. That, that didn't exist. That was something that got influenced heavily in the 60s and 70s by treatment centers where they encouraged that kind of open discussion, and a lot of our meetings are cast after that. My name's John. I'm alcoholic. Hey, John. Um, when I was uh, early sober, I had uh, a good friend of mine here uh, shoving tapes and uh, CDs down my throat. So as, um, as you were asking earlier, what have we learned from, uh, from the old-timers? Uh, I heard a tape by Don P., and, uh, who recently passed away, and um, in that tape he was talking about that when he was early sober that his sponsor told him that whenever anybody asked him to do something, he just said yes. And that was the rule of thumb. He just said yes. And um, I fall very short on that, but uh, by saying yes as much as I possibly can, uh, I've gotten to stay sober this long, and, and that was something I've learned that's been uh, very beneficial to me. And the other thing I wanted to ask a question that was is I've heard a lot of, uh, I, I, I don't know, I feel it's almost a, a scapegoat on um, 
attraction rather than promotion. When I was when I was hearing uh, the gentleman talking earlier about cornering people, you know, and I and I got cornered, you know, I got cornered outside of an AA room and ended up in AA, and I was totally against the idea of going to AA, and I wouldn't be sober today if I hadn't been somewhat cornered, uh, and um, and I just wanted to hear you talk about that about okay. attraction rather than promotion. All Thank right. you. Uh, and, and, and briefly, what I think attraction uh, over promotion is what I was talking about and set an example. And I'll give you an example of, uh, I told you about attraction, and that is, you know, the way my sponsors have lived and the way they've conducted their lives and the way I've seen them grow over a period of time. About four years ago, uh, I was working with a new guy. He had about three months. I was in a singular cell store, and I go into... Uh, because my cell phone wasn't working, and because it wasn't working, the calls kept dropping out, so I got charged for 10 calls instead of one because their system wasn't working. So I'm trying to explain this into a singular employee who wasn't getting it. And um, every once in a while I have a tendency, if they're not getting it, I think they're hard of hearing. So... um, So I explained it louder, and uh, eventually I got to the manager, and and, uh, they gave me a new phone. But uh, two weeks later, I'm sitting there with this new guy I'm working with, three months, and he said, were you in a singular store uh, a couple weeks ago? I said, yes, and he said, well, my wife was in there, and she said, you made the woman next to her cry. Well, I didn't make her cry. But his wife was looking for an excuse to find fault with Alcoholics Anonymous, and and she had said, your sponsor was in and made an ass out of himself. It taught me a valuable lesson. I don't care how long I've been around here or where I am. Everything I do, I should conduct myself as though a newcomer were watching me. That's impossible, but it's a goal. And if I behave myself that way, then... I will attract somebody because people who know how self-centered I am and how, how impatient I am and how all my character defects, if they know I don't have to act like that, they'll say, I want what he has. That's what attraction is. I want to be like that person. I don't want to be like a person who was perfect in the first place. I want to be like a person who was self-centered, uh, lost like I was, who learned how to become something. I want to be like Bill, who was trying to fool around when he was 17 years sober, who is out carrying the message in the way he lives and everything he does now after 46 years of sobriety. So that's what I believe is the attraction. Tell me about time. Okay, it's time for a break, and I'm sorry, but thank you. Let's...